Our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 52, and we commence our reading at verse 13, reading through into chapter 53 and verse 9. <clears throat> Isaiah 52 and from verse 13, let us hear the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Amen. So reads God's holy word. Turn with me again to Isaiah 53, and where we will be meditating upon God's word for <clears throat> some time just now. <clears throat> the title that I've given to the sermon today is The, the Death of Christ. <clears throat> And we're principally thinking of verses 7 to 9 of this chapter from God's Word. Just over 2,000 years ago, a black African was traveling in his chariot on a road running southwest from Jerusalem. He'd been paying a visit to the ancient city <clears throat> to worship God. Probably... During that visit, he had come into possession of a valuable scroll entitled Isaiah. 
And like many people since those days, he found his new book a compelling read. <clears throat> Some miles into his journey, a Jew of swarthy complexion, uh, a man by the name of Philip, came alongside the chariot. He arrested his attention with a searching question. Do you understand what you're reading? The puzzled African from Ethiopia responded, How can I unless someone explains it to me? He then invited Philip to come up into his chariot and explain the scriptures. And the passage before the Ethiopian eunuch that day on that southern Judean highway was Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, part of our text this morning. Before Philip could uh, offer a word of explanation, <clears throat> the Ethiopian asked a very interesting question <clears throat> found in Acts 8, verse 34. <clears throat> I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? We would say, <laughs> a very good question. Philip's response comes as no surprise. Verse 35 of Acts 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So our text this morning Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 9, is the good news about Jesus. What is he saying about him? <clears throat> well, we would love to have heard Philip's explanation, but in the Holy Spirit's wisdom, that is kept from us. <clears throat> of course, no believer should be in any doubt about the meaning of this passage. For here we have, or here we are brought face to face with the suffering and death of Christ. A suitable theme for us on this communion Sabbath. And as we consider the context and content of these verses, we see, first of all, the Saviour's willingness to die. The Saviour's willingness to die. Verse 7. <clears throat> he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The picture before us in this verse is that of a domestic animal. A domestic animal familiar, I'm sure, to all of us. The Savior is compared to a lamb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And the Saviour is also compared to a sheep, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It is clear from many scriptures that our Saviour Jesus Christ went willingly to the cross. He was in control of his mission to earth, a mission that culminated with his death at Calvary. Notice his own words about his death. In John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, that I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So although the eternal plan was executed by the Father in that he was smitten by God and afflicted, in that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, nevertheless Christ the Son willingly gave his life as a ransom for many. That conclusion is confirmed by the words before us in verse 7. The verse begins, he was oppressed. He was oppressed. Now today we use the word oppressed to mean very little. Uh, We might even say that uh, we are presently oppressed by the weather or that we're presently oppressed uh, by, by the news that, that comes across through the media day after day. But oppressed here carries with it the meaning of extreme physical suffering. It describes the tormenting nature of the treatment meted out to our Saviour. The language of the previous verses indicates the extent of this oppression. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed. With such oppression, with such affliction, with such torment, is it any wonder that the language of chapter 52 and verse 14 reads, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. But then we ask, how did the suffering servant, how did the Savior react to such horrendous treatment? How did he react to such harrowing brutality? Well, Acts 53 verse 7 informs us, Yet he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, was oppressed and he submitted to it. He suffered willingly. Quite literally, the torments of hell were being experienced in the outward afflictions of his body. And quite literally, the torments of hell were being experienced in the inner agonies of his soul. And yet he submitted to this treatment. He suffered willingly. Jesus Christ kept himself in a state of submissiveness. And it is at this point that the picture of the Lamb is brought to our attention. It's brought to our attention to graphically illustrate the Savior's quiet submission to the horrendous punishment he was receiving, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. As one writer says, of all the animals in the Jewish court of sacrifice, the lamb was most easily led to sacrifice. Jesus Christ went willingly to be sacrificed. The other picture is that of a sheep being shorn of its wool. Now, I've never led a lamb to the slaughter, but I have shorn a sheep of its wool. 
And believe me, the sheep meekly sits on its hind end, without a sound and without a struggle, until all its wool is removed. So all of these things bring home to us the point that the Saviour's suffering was born without a word of protest, without a word of complaint. In this respect, Jesus Christ stands out in sharp contrast to men in the Old Testament who had a large measure of suffering to endure. Men like Job or, uh, and Jeremiah. And these men were very vocal in their cry of anguish. They were very vocal in their protestations of innocence. But not Christ. He displayed before the first century Jewish Roman world his willingness to suffer and die as God's appointed sacrifice. And he testifies this to the world ever since. We praise our Saviour today on this communion Sabbath that he was willing to take the punishment due to us for sin, that he was willing to die for us, that he was willing to endure the pains of hell for our sake, the Saviour's willingness to die. And then, secondly, the Saviour's experience of death. The Saviour's experience of death. At this point, we want to concentrate on the words from the middle of verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Some people today would say that Christ did not actually die, but that he merely swooned. And what we call the resurrection in their eyes was merely a recovery from an unconscious state. But such information does not stand up to scrutiny. It does not stand up under investigation. For both Old and New Testaments clearly reveal that the suffering servant died. He died, and that is what this statement means. He was cut off out of the land of the living. As Alec Mateer, a trusted Old Testament commentator, writes, So truly did the Saviour die, that, like all the dead, he was removed from the world of the living. And of course, the fact of his death is confirmed by his burial, of which we read in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. One commentator, after giving due consideration to the original text, uh, gives the following meaning. Wicked people and the rich man were somehow involved in the burial of the Jew. And we know who the wicked people were. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And we also know who the rich man was. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy secret disciple. He asked permission from Pilate to bury the body of the Lord. But all these facts confirm the reality. <clears throat> all these facts confirm the experience of our Lord's death. And of course, how vital, how vital that he should experience death. 
For the curse of a broken law was death. God had said to Adam and Eve, In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And die they did. And as sons and daughters of Adam, we have all broken the law. Since we have all sinned. And so that death sentence hangs over every sinner. Eternal separation from God. And the only way, the only way that the death sentence can be lifted, the only way that the death sentence can be removed is by a substitute. As is by someone else stepping in and taking upon himself the sentence of death taking upon himself the curse of a broken law. And someone else did. Someone else did step in, and that someone was the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 verse 9 reads, Suffering death so that by the grace of God he might taste or experience death for everyone. So let us praise God and let us thank God that Jesus Christ was willing to offer and was prepared to die, that he was prepared to bear the curse of a broken law for us as our substitute. The Savior's willingness to die, the Savior's experience of death, and then thirdly, the Savior's purpose in dying the Savior's purpose in dying. Though we have already alluded to the purpose of Christ's death, the prophet draws it out very clearly in verse 8 in language that is unmistakable. Stricken for the transgression of my people. The language used to describe the torture, punishment and death of the servant is more characteristic of a criminal. It's more characteristic of an evildoer, of a wicked man, than it is of a good and holy man. And in case we should be tempted to jump to that conclusion, that the prophet, and ultimately the Holy Spirit, is careful to remind us that although the, the servant endured all these afflictions, it was in spite of the fact that he was holy. It was in spite of the fact that he was pure. It was in spite of the fact that he was sinless. Verse 9, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. No violence, no deceit in his mouth, nothing against him. Jesus Christ was the perfect Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, as the scriptures testify. But then we hear a chorus of protest from civil rights campaigners. We hear the representatives of Amnesty International cry out in consternation. Why? Why then did he suffer? Why then was he tormented? Why then was he punished? And to such an extent that he cried out in that great cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was he crucified? Why did he die? 
Was it not most unfair? Was it not terribly unjust? Maybe you've thought that yourself and have asked the question, why? Well, there's a very simple answer and it's found in words already quoted. End of verse 8. Stricken for the transgression of my people. So there it is. Stricken for the transgression of my people. There is the explanation. Jesus Christ did not suffer for himself, for he had no sins of his own. He was faultless. He was innocent. But he went willingly to Calvary to suffer and die to save his people from the punishment due to them for sin. So justice, perfect justice, was meted out at Calvary, stricken for the transgression of my people. One commentator writes, The servant endured the punishment which should and otherwise would have fallen upon those described here as my people. Yes, there was justice at the cross. Jesus Christ was justly punished because he bore the sins of many. Now, of interest to us this morning is this group here described as my people, stricken for the transgression of my people. Who who were they? On Christ, we are told, was laid the guilt of his people. So who are his people? Well, from the divine perspective, this term comprises the elect, all those whom God has purposed to save from all eternity through a Redeemer. And from the human perspective, this term, my people, is made up of all those who sincerely believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. All those throughout the course of human history, past, present and future. And so the question must be asked, are you, are you included in this group? Are you part of his people? Are you included in this term, my people? In other words, do you sincerely believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? If you are, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're believing that he willingly went to the cross as the innocent Lamb of God to pair the punishment due to you for sin, then you are included. Then you are one of his people. The black African from Ethiopia, on reading this passage for the first time on the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza, found Christ and was converted. He was saved. He knew. He understood that Jesus Christ was stricken for him. He knew he understood that Jesus Christ died on the cross for him. And as you sit here today, listening to the explanation of this passage, what is your reaction to Jesus Christ? 
like the Ethiopian? Are you trusting him as your Savior? He heard the explanation. He believed. You have heard the explanation. I trust all of you, young and old alike, believe and are saved. If that is the case, if that is your response, then you ought to love him who first loved you. You ought to love him with, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and seek to serve him then all the days of your life. Praise God for such a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. As we linger a few moments at the table, I draw your attention to a line in Isaiah 53 and verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This particular line in verse 11 focuses our attention on another glorious aspect of Christ's sacrificial death for sinners. By becoming our substitute, not only did Jesus take the punishment of our sin upon himself, but he made his righteousness our righteousness. That is why his people can be considered righteous. That is how you and I can be considered righteous before a holy God. We know as we examine our lives that we are far from perfect. We know that there is the remaining corruption within our hearts. Uh, we sin every day, as the Catechism reminds us in thought and word and deed. You know your own sins and your own shortcomings, and I know mine. That is why we pray as our Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. But at the same time, we know that by his grace, God sees us. God regards us as holy. He sees us as his holy children. And that's because of our union with Jesus Christ. That's because we're united to him by faith. In Jesus Christ, you are a perfect child of God. You are his righteous one. Not because you're righteous in and of yourself, but because you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, with his spotless robe. Now this truth should thrill us this truth should excite us. It is a truth that should cause us frequently to be filled with praise and adoration to God for his so great salvation. Now the challenge for you and me as we leave this communion table is this.
to work out each day what our Savior Jesus Christ has worked in. We are counted as righteous because Jesus is righteous. The challenge then for you and me is to to die more and more to sin and to live more and more to righteousness. The challenge for you and me is to be what we are. To be holy as God is holy. To be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Yes, the challenge is to be what we are. To be righteous in our daily thoughts. To be righteous in our daily conversation. To be righteous in our daily activities. Now some will ask, what does that look like? Quite simply, it looks like Jesus. For he was perfect in every way. Observe observe Jesus' words and works recorded in the Gospels. And indeed throughout Scripture, and you will be given a pattern to follow, to walk in his footsteps. Remember, his life was lived in perfect conformity to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. He had no other gods apart from his Father in heaven. He worshipped his Father in spirit and in truth. He hallowed the Father's name, never blaspheming. He kept the Sabbath perfectly. He honoured his father and mother, never more so than when on the cross he made arrangements for the care and well-being of his widowed mother. He was a model of sexual purity, no unchaste thoughts, words or actions. And although the earth and all its dwellers belonged to him, he never borrowed and did not repay. He was the personification of truth, saying on one occasion, I am the truth. And though he had nowhere to lay his head, he never coveted any man's possession. Our Savior lived out the commandments. That is why the Father, looking down upon him, could say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was the son in whom he delighted. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to follow his example. However, it is always important to remember that we are not saved by keeping the commandments, but we are saved to keep them, to observe them. And of course, we are we're given the Lord's help in seeking to be what we are, in seeking to be righteous as he is righteous. For, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So seek to be like Christ. And in this way, the light of your life will shine brightly. That's our, our duty. That's our responsibility. Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us, is credited to our account. So be what you are, a child of God. Amen. Father in heaven, uh, we have been singing about the wondrous works of Christ, and none more so than uh, the work of redemption accomplished at the cross and Calvary, brought home to us today by word and sacrament. And grant our Father that, that we might never lose sight of the, uh, the benefits that accrue to us because of that great and marvelous work. And help us, O Lord, by grace to be what we are, uh, that we are accounted righteous because of Christ, but help us to be righteous in our daily walk. And we thank you that you work within us both to will and to do what we are, are, are expected, what is expected of us. And grant our Father that, that we might in the days to come shine forth in the midst of a dark and sinful world that they might give glory uh, to our Father in heaven, the one who has redeemed us by his grace. Now receive the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.